far we're moving along, Mike. I think we got it. <laughs> we're working on it. Um, that was great, though. I'm going to enjoy that. Um, all right. Uh, before we continue on, I would like everyone to open their Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Betsy, I do not have this on the PowerPoint, but I'll, okay. <laughs> I'll go ahead and read through it. You're awesome, Bets. All righty, and we're going to start with uh, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. So last week, uh, we came to what is appropriately called the fall of man. And the reason why it's called the fall of man is because it's the first time that humanity ever sinned. The first time that humanity broke a commandment against God. Now, when we break commandments, things happen. It is the way... Of the world, it's the way that God has um, is. He is a just God, a loving God, but also just. And because of that, when you break a commandment, He must, in return, do something because He is righteous. This is what we find today. We find the judgments of God. So, starting with verse fourteen, the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." The serpent is not given a chance to explain himself. Instead, God casts his judgment immediately, beginning with the serpent. It is interesting to notice how the curses play out. Originally, at the chapter, it started with the serpent, then the woman, then the man. Here, in the questioning, it begins with the man, then the woman, and then ends um, with the man. Because of what the snake had done, it is a resultant curse. This stresses the significance of the act by the serpent. It is the act which causes the curse to occur to begin with. Above all livestock and beasts of the field, the serpent is cursed. This does not necessarily mean that other animals are cursed, but instead it recognizes the significance of it being cursed at all. The curse is reflected on the fact that it shall go on its belly eating dust. 
In Leviticus, such animals are considered to be unclean. To eat dust does not necessarily mean that the snake will literally eat dust alone. Instead, it represents humiliation. Just as foes in the Old Testament will bow their heads upon defeat, as it is, the snake will always have this humiliation. The curse for the snake concludes with the reality of continuing animosity between the serpent and the woman. Not only is there animosity between the woman and the serpent, but it will also be between the offspring of both. In some sense, this etymological in that it describes why snakes and humans don't get along. You can ask Dan about this. He does not like snakes. Um, yeah, in another, we must remember the truth that there is a high sense of symbolism. While later commentators recognize the serpent as Satan himself, or at least being influenced by darkness in some capacity, it may very well be the case that that's what we see here. There will be a continuation of this fight between good and evil, a continuation of striving against each other. This makes sense if the serpent represents evil as an archetype. In this sense, then, evil will strive with the woman and her descendants until the end. But the serpent, or evil, will not win in the end. For in the end, humanity will overcome evil, but at pains. This is most definitely fulfilled in Christ as he crushes the head of the serpent who deceived humanity into darkness and death. So those in Christ also join in that crushing. Though it is Christ's triumph, if we share in Christ, we share that triumph. Now it continues with verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The next to come under judgment is the woman. In this sense, the woman is promised pain in childbearing uh, and bringing forth children. In some sense, there is a blessing indicated as it implies that the woman will continue to pr- uh, the process of life. Through women come children, which perpetuates and continues the human race. Yet there is still pain. The calling of the woman is not taken away as the helper and producer of further generations, but it is always tinged with the pain which comes from falling into temptation and disobedience. Perhaps the hardest part of the text is the final aspect of the judgment, in which the woman will be contrary to her husband, but he shall rule over you. What this means is hotly debated. From the idea that a woman will long or desire for her husband sensuously, or that it means desiring to be equal with her husband in regards um, to life and roles, but that he will rule over her regardless. If taken this latter way, then it would imply that the woman would abandon her role, which is to be the helper, and in response, the husband will seek to abandon his role of loving husband to domineering husband. In this sense, the husband and wife relationship has been changed because of sin and the fall. Only after Christ is that relationship seen to be able to be restored, as we find in the New Testament where women are called to their original purpose of submission and while men are called to their purpose of love. I'm going to take one second and close that door. It won't stay closed. It will stay closed because that's pretty real. Can you Okay. 
like it's fun in the background. I love it, but you know. Um, all right, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Of all the judgments that we've seen so far, the one against man is the longest. Some might find it unfair that man would have the longest judgment when he seemed to play a minor role in the story. But the truth is, we need to remember it was his responsibility to protect, guard, nurture all of the created world. It was his responsibility to be the leader, and yet he followed. We see this fully when it is not until he eats of the fruit that their eyes are both opened at the same time. Because of this failure, it led to the overarching fall in what we see now. And we see this explicitly. Adam's first obedience was to the Lord. And instead he listened to the voice of his wife. God commanded, he told Adam not to eat, and yet Adam ate. As such, the land becomes cursed because of this decision. And we notice it is not man, but the land is cursed. This reflects the fact that it was from the land that man received his sustenance and how the land produced good food for man. Just as the woman will have pain in what she is called to be in motherhood, so man will have pain in working the land and food production. Whereas in the garden the provision came and man simply worked to sustain the providence, now he must work in order to even get the food itself. The fact that man will do this all the days of your life implies what we will find at the end of the punishment. This is further seen in the fact that he shall work for his sustenance. Whereas previously work was done joyfully, now work would be required for bare necessities. It is even more sorrowful when we consider the purpose aspect of man. Man's purpose to glorify God in obedience by working, it now becomes toilsome, exhausting. Ultimately, the judgment is made firm. Man will return to the ground from which he was taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. In the garden was the potential for continued existence in peace, joy, with life being lived to the fullest and most abundant sense. Now, however, man will toil in his life and will ultimately face death, returning from where he began. Then we come to verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The prompting of Adam to rename his wife is interesting at this point. Uh, What causes him to call her Eve, which comes from Zoe, which means life? What's the purpose of this? There are a number of theories from it being retribution against her for bringing his downfall, and it's kind of comic in a way, to the recognition that through Eve would come generations of humans. Now the latter seems most likely since throughout the judgment phase, woman's procreation is seen. First with the seed against the serpent seed, the fact that childbearing would be laborious and man's mortality at the end of the judgments. In this sense, Adam may recognize her as the mother of the living because from her life would still come. Some see it 
in the act of God an act of provision for Adam and Eve. God clothes them in skins. In some sense, this reminds them of their sinfulness too, though. The fact that they need clothes reminds them of their disobedience because previously when they were naked, they were unashamed. But now they are not. Yet on the other hand, we still see an act of providence. Thus, we see two aspects. Man's sinfulness, but perhaps also God's ultimate provision for that sinfulness. Now we come to verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We close the chapter with the Lord God proclaiming his final judgment. It is true that humanity has received some of what the serpent had claimed. They had become like God in knowing good and evil. Yet this was not the way in which God intended them to achieve it. Instead, they took for themselves what was only God's to give, and in doing so, they took God's place. It is God who is the discerner. By going against him, they take the mantle for themselves. Yet this also leads to their doom. They are cast out of the garden lest they eat from the tree of life. The tree of life would mean that they would live forever if they should either eat it once or from it continually. In that sense, they would become immortal like God in a way which was not meant to occur. Because of this possibility, God immediately acts. We see the way it is said, a thought that is actually unfinished with words, but instead is finished with actions. Man is cast out of the garden. Man returns to the untilled world to work that which he would ultimately return to. By saying he drove them out, it is a similar statement as once we find in Joshua, when the Israelites drove out the Canaanites. Like there is here, it does not imply that they were killed per se. It means that they were no longer in the land which they had originally dwelt. Just like the Canaanites who were cast out because of their sin, so too is Adam and Eve cast out of the garden for their sin. In order to emphasize the point, cherubim, angels, were set to guard the entryway into the garden. The flaming sword may represent even lightning. Ultimately, if they should attempt to return, they would face certain death. The fruitful land is barred. They are barred from the presence of God in a unique way. Truly, paradise has been lost. So the main point of these verses, they're to inform us of the repercussions of the first act of human sin. Humanity, given a specific task of obedience, fails to obey according to the word of God. As such, humanity falls into sin and is judged because of this. The judgment against humanity and the serpent and darkness has ramifications for all of humanity, as the human seed will always have strife against the seed of the serpent. The humans are sent out of the garden and therefore do not have the kind of presence with God that they once experienced and will return to the dust in death. And these are things that we all experience. All right. So the first application point that I thought of comes from the fall of man itself. Uh, oftentimes, as I mentioned, Genesis chapter 3 is described as the fall or the fall of man. 
And the reason for this is humanity is placed in an ideal situation. God has provided all their needs, whether it be food, safety, companionship, and even purpose. Yet even in the ideal state, humanity is still created in the image of God, and as such has freedom of choice, either to follow God in obedience or fall into temptation. The result is plain. Humanity falls into temptation. The highest of created beings, the image bearers of God most high, fall into sin and disobedience. The one commandment is broken, and because of this, humanity must suffer the consequences for its actions. Thus, the first point we can see about the fall of man is that our choices do matter. Even if we are to say that God predestines events, which many of us do say, that does not negate our responsibility to use our freedom responsibly and in accordance with the word of God. The second thing we notice is that the choices of the first of our race has repercussions for all of our race. First, in regards to the judgments placed on the man and the woman, the women still receive uh, the pain of childbearing and childrearing, actually. Women who have children receive the great joy of children, true, but it does not come painless. From conception until the actual birth of the child, the woman's body goes through a tremendous amount of change and pain. Thus, from perhaps one of the greatest of blessings comes also one of the hardest times in a woman's life. Though there is great joy in what comes from the blessing, we are always reminded of the fall with every joyful moment of childbearing. And Carissa likes to remind me of this all the time. She gets mad at Eve a lot. But the same is true when it comes to marriage, if you notice. Marriage, as we saw a few weeks ago, had a high purpose in which the husband and the wife were equal yet with different purposes. After the fall, however, there's a change in that relationship. Wives can become envious of their husband's role, or instead of focusing on what their calling is and faithfulness to God, will often seek the favor of their husbands even above the favor of God. Whereas marriage was originally seen as a blessing from God toward both the man and the woman, it becomes tarnished because of the fall. And we see these things even until this day. We know of these relationships that happen where instead of focusing on God together, one will focus on the other one to win the favor of the other, especially women to husbands, wives to husbands. Meanwhile, men and husbands often suffer from work. Whereas work was originally seen as a blessing because it provided purpose, now work becomes burdensome. It becomes harder to acknowledge and appreciate the blessing of having a purpose can bring. Because of this, work is tiresome. Far more tiresome than it was originally. Toil, struggle, just to provide is still common in the world. Then we consider the seed against the seed motif found in the curse of the serpent, the great deceiver. The seed of the deceiver is to continue to deceive, to continue to whisper into the ear of man, to cause doubt, to cause malice, to cause distrust between humanity and humanity, humanity and nature, and humanity and our maker. The struggle between right and wrong, the struggle between following after God or following after deception. For each of us, the struggle is real. And it's almost tangible as we continue to live our lives. This tension is most tangible, however, in the reality of life and death. 
for each of us experiences the reality of mortality. Sin, disobedience, it leads to death. Just one sin brought about the death of our race. A single sin. A single broken commandment. Each one of us feels the reality of death because just like Adam and Eve, we too break God's commandments. But not a single one, but many. As such, death comes and we taste death ourselves because we are like them, falling into temptation. So it is that we see these broken relationships. We see broken relationships with each other. We see broken relationships with the world around us. We see broken relationships within ourselves and our purpose. Our purpose to live and enjoy the providence of God in this life. It is broken because of sin. And finally, the greatest of relationships which is broken is our relationship with God himself. For the casting out of the bliss of Eden is a casting out of the presence of God in a unique way for humanity. Thus we see that this is the result of sin. One sin broke all of these things. Now today, we see sin does much the same, doesn't it? It breaks things. It breaks people. It breaks us. It breaks what is good, what is pleasing, what is acceptable. Sin, disobedience, takes what God has given and spins it on its head. All of us, from Adam and Eve until now, have experienced all of these things because of sin. It calls for us to follow, and we willingly bind ourselves to the destruction it brings. Just as Adam and Eve are tempted by the fruit of a lesser tree, so are we. Each one of us knows the satisfaction that sin brings to the mouth, yet it is poison to the body. The fall of Adam and Eve is just a prelude to a long line then of individuals who have failed to master over the passion of sin and temptation and disobedience. None of us are worthy to enter into the garden again. For each of us has sinned and deserves the very punishment which Adam and Eve face. As the psalmist and later Paul writes, there is none who are righteous, none who are good, not one seeks after God. The devastating consequence of the fall is apparent in the great sins which are committed, and in the great displacement we often find ourselves in, and the great desire within us to find a place, though we are often led astray. We are a race of a long line of leavers, a long line of disobedience, a long line of sinners. It all starts here in the garden and leads to where we are today. All the brokenness starts here in the garden. Thus, in this chapter, we see humanity, and we also see why humanity is in the state of brokenness, brokenness that it's in. We see our origins in chapter uh, 1 through 3 of Genesis, but we also see what went wrong as well. It deals with humanity and all of its glory, all of our glory. And that's what makes the fall so great. For we were created with great purpose, to glorify our God in obedience, to choose to follow after him. So we learn a great deal about the situation. We learn a great deal about ourselves. How did we get here in this fallen world? Because of where we began. A garden, a commandment, a tree, a deceiver, and disobedience. 
And then it also leads me to another point, and that's God's justice. It is not only about ourselves that we learn, not only about humanity. We also learn a great deal about our God. For though we learn about the situation which humanity now finds itself in, we also learn about God, who is the Lord of all. His great compassion and mercy. That though we sinned, He still gives us hope through life and by showing us of the seed who crushes the serpent's head. Likewise, it reminds us of the wisdom of God. For our God is a God who distinguishes between darkness and light and is the one who is worthy to declare just judgments. As such, when humanity breaks the commandment of God, it is God's rightful place to cast judgments on those who break his commandments. That is what we find out about our God. Our God does judge. He cannot simply allow wickedness to go free. And thank God for this. For if God did allow Adam and Eve to continue on as though nothing had ever happened, he would not be a very noble God, nor would he be a just God. It would be akin to someone breaking a law in our own country and then the judge letting them go despite all the evidence. Such a judge would not be just. Yet God is just. This then allows us to learn about the just God. It allows us to see that if we are made in the image of God, then there is a serious call for us to seek righteousness as well. To seek justice. We are not to be a people who allow sin and evil to simply exist, but that we should seek to separate ourselves from our sins and encourage others to separate themselves from their sins. We who are Christians should be the loudest voice against injustice because we know that our God is against injustice. We are not called to be silent in our culture when injustice occurs. We are called to be those who seek justice because it is part of our God's very character. Thus, while it may seem hard for us to do, the truth is we should praise our God for his just judgments. When we look at the story of the Garden of Eden, we should sing the praises of our God for his righteousness. Because this righteousness, which we learn about, will lead us as we seek it ourselves. So the encouragement there is to seek justice. Seek to abolish injustice. Be lovers of righteousness. Be lovers of obedience to our God. Knowing that it is through obedience to him we find justice itself. For the just shall live by faith, the prophet says. Those who are justified are justified by faith. And in the same way, this faith will lead us to the well of justice, which is God. Praise God, then, for these things. He has taught us so much about himself. And the more we learn, the better we will appreciate and love all of his ways. And ultimately, that leads us to the gospel. And um, Genesis, it's easy to see where the gospel begins. It begins with our origins, of course. We see this in the first three chapters of Genesis, how all the universe and all the cosmos is created by the word of God. Last of all, of course, humanity. Humanity created in the image of God itself or himself. And that gives us a high calling. It gives each of us this sense of dignity and worth that if we were just products of chance and nature, 
we would not have inherent within us. But being created in the image of God, it gives us this worth. It gives us a greater worth than we could ever comprehend even. And each one of us has it. But what we see today is the origin of the fall, and that's disobedience. And that disobedience in the fall has plagued us ever since. Because we are a long line of leavers, we have all had the apple in our hand and we've all taken a bite. We've all done that which is unrighteous. We've all done that which is, goes against the commandments of God. We've all broken the rules. And because of that, we deserve every judgment against us. The question then is, what can we do? What can you do against the judgments which you rightly deserve? What can you do when God catches you with not only the apple in your hand, but with a bite taken out? What can you do? Well, the answer to that is trust in God. Because God brings redemption. And that's what we see in today's text. Life continues on. It doesn't stop. He doesn't just wipe out humanity. He says, you're going to have children. It's going to be a long line. But that child eventually will come that will crush the serpent's head. That child eventually is Jesus. But it's not just Jesus either. Because if you are in Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, your foot is crushing the head of that serpent as well. Because through him, you can overcome. Because he has overcome. It is not just the fact that he does it, because he did. (laughs) He certainly did. And guess what? In two weeks, we're going to celebrate the fact that he did overcome. That's what the resurrection is about. The resurrection is the recognition that God crushes the serpent's head. The deceiver is now no more. And all those who are in Christ will raise from the dead as well in the last days. And we will be entering into glory with Jesus Christ. It's because of what he does that allows us to do it as well. He deserves the glory. He deserves the honor. He deserves it all. And we get to enjoy every second of it. And it begins now. The strife between the serpent And the seed of the woman begins at your birth. And it begins especially when you first come to Christ. You are in the battle. You are in the strife. When temptation comes, will you overcome? The answer is, if you are in Christ, you have the strength to do it because he gives it to you. Is it hard? Yes. Are you going to fail? Yes. (laughs) I fail very often. I won't give Carissa the microphone. She'll tell you I fail. (laughs) But that's what the wonderment is. That in the end, it's Christ's righteousness on me and on you. You don't have to do anything to attain it. Just believe and trust that, guess what? The promise is sure. The promise is has been delivered. The serpent has been crushed. Fight on.
because we're going into glory, everyone. And it starts here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we learned today in the scriptures. And though the judgments are hard for us to recognize, and it's hard for us to see how it is that we've gone for such a long history of violence, of sin, of death, we who know the story, though, know that it's happened. We know that the deceptions, that the sins, they're going to be done. And that Christ is the first defeater, and through him, he, all things will be put under subjection to him, including death itself. And so, Lord, we know that death is just taking away, that there is going to be a time when death is no more, the deception is done, when sin is over, and now we will be raised in glory into eternal life because of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us minds and hearts that desire to know you more so that we will fight along in the battle. This world is in need of us. This world is in need of those who fight and strife against the darkness. Your light is in us. The darkness will never overcome. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.